0: Lord Jesus, you are truly amazing. We acknowledge that we are a sinful people deserving nothing but death and separation from you due to our thoughts and actions. Yet you have called us into your family. You made a sacrifice that none of us can even comprehend by choosing to step away from your perfect relationship with your father in heaven, where you lived in perfect harmony. You lived among us. You died a most brutal death for sins that you did not commit but thanks be to God that you conquered sin and death through your resurrection and ascension back to your rightful place at the right hand of our Father God in heaven. All of this to show just how much you love us. Lord Jesus, we are not worthy of the grace and mercies that you bestow upon us. We confess, Lord Jesus, that our hearts do not desire to follow after you. As the prophet Jeremiah so aptly wrote, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. But you, Lord Jesus, can take these hearts of stone and turn them into flesh. Do not let us sit in our sin that keeps us from you, Lord Jesus. Help us to take our teaching seriously from last week and deal with our sin, not in a way that just pushes it aside or addresses it haphazardly. May we heed the words of Paul and put the sin to death through the work and conviction of your Holy Spirit. I thank you, Father, for this local body and the love and care that each of these members display toward each other on a regular basis. I want to thank you specifically this morning for the moms in this church that heed your word and teach your holy word to their children. May the moms in this room continue uh, the good work of teaching your name to their kids that you gifted them uh, so that they may raise these little ones and can grow up in the faith and be bright lights in this dark world. Continue to give the mom strength in the busyness of their lives and put a desire in them to prioritize family worship so that their little ones can see you clearly. We acknowledge your church globally this morning, Father God, and ask for the truth to be shared through all of the churches this morning. We pray for the Taves family and their work through Mission Aviation Fellowship. May you continue to protect this family in the midst of their missionary work by keeping them physically healthy and able to preach your word to the ends of the earth. But more importantly, Father, we pray that you would please protect them from the fiery darts of the enemy as we know that spiritual warfare is real. Similarly, we pray for our sister church, Edward Edward Bible Church and Pastor Jeff Coulter. May that local body be a bright shining light for your gospel and continue to grow in the fruit of of daily life and sanctification of your Holy Spirit. As we move now into a time of preaching, I ask you, Jesus, to be with my brother Hans. I am thankful for the time that he has given in preparation for this morning and ask that you would help us to have soft hearts to see your word clearly this morning. May we see clearly the need to put on holiness and put to death the sin nature that we all have. In your holy name I pray, amen.
1: Amen, amen. Thanks, Michael. You got me, am I on? You guys can hear me, okay. All right, would you open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3? We're going to be in uh, verses 12 through 17, but I'm actually going to start in Colossians 2.9. So our text is 12 through 17 in chapter 3, but I'm going to start in Colossians 2.9. It's March Madness. How many of you have gotten your brackets busted? Pretty much everybody by now, right? Thank you, Princeton and Farley Dickinson. I played basketball uh, back in what seems like the Stone Age, I graduated college and played my last year of basketball uh, somewhat um, in a (laughs) high level in 2001, uh, 22 years ago, it seems like yesterday. But part of why I love watching March Madness is seeing how much has changed in two decades, there is no such thing as a big man anymore, and everybody shoots threes, anybody notice that? But one of the simplest changes from then to now is what teams wear to the arenas, the clothing that they wear. When I played, the coaches and players for our team, notice that I sound like my dad, when I played back in the day, when I played, uh, the coaches and the players uh, were required to wear suits. And one of the first conversations I had with the coaching staff at Notre Dame was regarding how many suits my parents had to buy me so that I would have enough to get through my freshman year. And now, every team and most coaches wear athletic gear, or what used to be termed sweatsuits. (laughs) But the change to more informal wear began when I was in school, and so what we had to do at our school was a bit out of the ordinary, and it marked us as a team. It, It identified us as different, the clothing that we wore. I still remember a USA Today article that came out, I believe it was my sophomore year, And it was pointing out some of these changes in college basketball. And in that article, they pointed out the fact that if you ran into a group of young men at the airport, predominantly near or over seven feet tall, dressed in nice suits, you knew that you were sitting in the presence of one of two men's basketball teams, either BYU or Notre Dame. That was it. And this was because we had become literally the last two teams in all of college basketball who wore full suits when we traveled. Our outward appearance, is what marked us, for better or for worse. Now, in Colossians this morning, we're going to be looking at a text that has a similar message, that the true people of God are marked by their outward appearance. And while Paul will use this metaphor of being clothed as the basis of this command, he is not saying that Christians are known for their literal clothing, as if we are monks or nuns or Sikhs or Orthodox Jews, but he will use the phrase of putting on outward behavior and the supporting attitude, inward attitude and heart, as if they are an action of putting on new clothing. It takes proactive movement. In doing so, Paul says that this is how the Colossians, as well as other Christians, you and me included, will show themselves to be standing in the identity that Christ has given them by his work of redemption. And he has the same message for us this morning at Mission Fellowship. Now, as we learned last week, the imagery of putting off and putting on would have meant something to the early church, for in the act of baptism, Christians would put off their old garments and put on new clothing, usually white, uh, to enter into the water. And there they would go through baptism, symbolizing their death and resurrection in Christ. They would emerge anew in their white clothing, symbolizing the purity and righteousness that Christ has accomplished for them in his death on the cross and his resurrection. Would you guys look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 9? And we'll just refresh our memory of what Paul said about the act of baptism. He said, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them uh, in him. Now, this is the symbolic ordinance of baptism that Christ commanded us to participate in as Christians, that symbolizes in the physical realm the new birth that we have experienced spiritually. The fact that all of this has occurred at the spiritual level. And our baptism is also our vow and our oath to Christ and to the local assembly in which we participate in the larger universal church of Christ's people, that we will be faithful, that we will be allegiant, that we will walk in submission to him and to his people. But then the Colossians were beginning to become confused. They had misunderstood this, that their baptism led to something. Rather than walking in this new identity, they were being enslaved to worldly religious ideals and rituals that were taught by false teachers in their midst, as if they could walk in the new life they had been given by doing these ascetic rituals or self-denial. And Paul tells them that this is the opposite of what Christ was was and is doing in his church. And so to reorient them, he begins this section of chapter 3, where he tells them to refocus their minds and their hearts on the truth of what Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished. It enthroned Christ as king over his people by his spirit, and we are his people, therefore, in a spiritual sense, already participating in the kingdom in so much as we give our lives over to his lordship. Look at it there in your Bibles, right there, three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, meaning enthroned as king. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, the reality of what is going on there in Christ's enthronement. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, first, Paul says, remember the main thing, the supremacy of Christ, who is your Lord and Savior. And those are not just words we toss around half heartedly Lord, Savior, oh, that's great. No, Lord means Lord, means authority. Savior means you would be dead without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord and Savior. And that is the primary truth that should govern our lives, is that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. When we confess it with our mouths, that is not just a prayer, a sinner's prayer that happens one time when you're at some kid's camp when you're young. It is an everyday witness and testimony that you show with your life. You've first professed it with your mouth, but then you live it out with your body, with your life, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so because of this truth that we learned last week, there are earthly things we have to put to death in ourselves. We can't just expect that going in that water and coming out will suddenly hit us with a lightning bolt where all of a sudden we will walk in righteousness and holiness and truth. There are things that have to be put to death in ourselves. And I don't know about you, but what I am finding in my own life is that that death is an ongoing fight where I am constantly trying to pierce through my flesh and stab it so it will stop resurrecting itself. Anybody else have that problem? And individually, we have to slay that idolatry in our heart that leads to us making ourselves king or queen over and above everyone and everything else. And Paul used the sin of sexual immorality as the picture, the impurity and lust that was behind it, to speak of the idolatry that we must individually kill. And this idea of sexuality, it's misusing each other to lift ourselves up. If there is sexual sin in our lives, even an idolatry of it, we must kill it And there's a reason Paul included this is because it is widespread. It is widespread even in good, solid, strong Christian marriages. We must kill the idolatry of sexual sin. And this led into the command to stop acting in our old humanity made in the likeness of Adam. And he called the church to stop dividing like Adam. And then this further led into the call to instead act within our new humanity, which was purchased and imputed to us in the redemption of Christ through the gospel. Now, Paul commanded the Colossian church to strive for unity in Christ, to strive for unity just as Christ has, to lay their lives down in death so that unity can be built. And it's in this observable, selfless unity that Christ's true body, his true church, shows the world who he is and acts as a light in the dark to draw those who are his citizens but just may not know it yet into his people. And so this morning, we're going to unpack this identity further. We're going to look at what kind of metaphorical clothing the church is to put on because we have put off so much of our flesh, and that put-on clothing is what is going to mark us as God's people, acting within the truth that Jesus is our king, acting within the truth that he is enthroned over our lives, not just when we remember it, but at all moments of every day. And our way of relating in the community of Christ should be so stark in contrast to the world around us that it stands out more than a bunch of 19- to 20-year-old seven-footers strolling through the airport in suits. The overall summary of our section today is that we should be putting on this new nature. We should be putting on Jesus Christ. And that's what you can write down as our title, putting on our new nature as God's elect saints. Putting on our new nature as God's elect saints. And we will see two distinct sections in our text today. First, in verses 12 through 14, we will see the new nature of Christ's chosen people. And then in verses 15 through 17, we will see the thankful heart behind our new nature. So let's now read beginning in verse 5 and reading through into our section this morning. We were just reminded by Paul to think on things above, not on things on the earth. And then he says, our section from last week, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And now our text for this week. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. The first thing that we see Paul trying to uh, put across, the point he's trying to make, is the new nature of Christ's chosen people. He shows us the new nature of Christ's chosen people. We put off all of these things that are in our old nature, our Adamic nature, our nature from the kingdom of darkness, and we now put on things that are in his nature. And notice that word then, put on then. Notice that he follows the statements about unity. Christ is all in all with this statement. Then, because of this, put on something else. In other words, because you have ceased or put aside or slain your flesh, this is the then, then you need to also put on new clothing. But before he tells us what that clothing is or looks like, he notes our identity, and he does so in this very quick Cliff Notes version. You see, when you are a basketball player, you don't wear baseball cleats to practice. That would mess up your floor. When you are a police officer, you don't wear a fireman's uniform. The clothing has to match our identity. When you're my size, for example, you do not wear small. Otherwise, people will run away. (laughs) Nobody wants to see that. You guys see what I'm talking about? Your clothing matches your identity. Paul speaks to their and our identity next when he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let's break each of these three down. The first is chosen ones. The Greek word here is eklektoi. It means those are elected or chosen or picked by God. Why are they picked? Does God go with the model where you want the quarterback and the head cheerleader? You want the top of the top, the cream of the crop? Is that how God operates? I don't know that any of us would be sitting here if that were the case. God chooses not based on human or understandable qualification. There is no systematic statistical study that you can do across the church where you will figure out God's logic for choosing who he has chosen. You know why? Because his logic is his sovereign grace, his sovereign choice. He chooses in a way that gives no visibility to the glory of God. Of the chosen, but he chooses in a way that gives all visibility to his sovereign grace. Amen. And this has always been the case. It is one of the ways that the church is a continuation of Israel. Look at what God says in our earlier readings in Deuteronomy. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7? Deuteronomy 7. Starting in verse six. Give me an amen if you're there. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He could have chosen the Hittites, he could have chosen the Amorites. He could have chosen the Germanic tribes. He could have chosen anybody he wanted. He chose Israel. Why? Why? Even today, with the amount of anti-Semitism that's around, the world would say, why? Why would you choose the people that you did? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, But it is because Yahweh, the Lord, loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Yahweh, the Lord your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them, he will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers." Notice that it is the Lord who has chosen them, and it is for no other reason than to show his kindness to a people who seemed least qualified and weakest by human standards. The point for their existence and election is to show the character of God listed beginning in verse 9. And there, beginning in verse 9, is a similar copy to Exodus 34, where Yahweh speaks of who he is to Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he tells Moses who he is. And then he expands on the reason for their existence. In another place, just a little bit before this, take a look at Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. A couple pages back there, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as Yahweh my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Now we could keep going and seeing that this was the point of their existence. Yahweh, the one whose name, the Tetragrammaton, is behind that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the God of Israel, calls them to use them for his glory so that they might shine his character to the world around them. You see, their purpose for being chosen was to be holy to the Lord or set apart for his purposes. And these purposes were to submit to his lordship and character. And this character of God is what is at the core of all of his commands and laws. God does not issue forth a command without it being based in who he is as the perfect, amazing, miraculous being who created us and is benevolent towards us. This character of God, this is what they were to show. And so what's at the core of all of his commands and laws, including the Levitical holiness code we looked at last week, you guys recall it? Here's a small section we looked at last week in Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It was the code that spoke of all the ways that the Israelites would distinguish themselves in their communal life and interpersonal relationships. In following the law of Yahweh, they would show themselves as a contrast to the pagans who were not under submission to Yahweh, but instead were lords of their own lives. Now, the continuation breaks into discontinuation with the fact that the church is not also a civil unit. It is not an ethnic group. In fact, he broke those lines... And Jesus spread his grace across the world so that we would be a nation, not of civil union, not of ethnicity, but a nation that is joined together by what we will read back in Colossians, is the bond of perfect love and harmony. And so we, likewise, are under the law of God, but it's a law that the New Testament calls the law of liberty, the law of love, the law of Christ, And so this same mission of standing out as a witness to God's character is what the New Testament church is called to. This is captured in the shorthand identity Paul gives back in Colossians, if you turn back there with me. It's shown there in Colossians. Notice the second piece of that, right? Not only are they God's chosen ones, right? So realize that Israel has been enveloped into the overall church, He is not just uh, the nationalistic Israel is no longer God's chosen people, in other words. So the church, with Jew and Gentile, is God's chosen ones, and they are holy and beloved. Now this second word, holy, it fits right in with the chosen ones because this is not holy in terms of moral righteousness, but rather holy, meaning set apart by God for a purpose. That purpose, as we just read, was the f- purpose of fulfilling the mission given to the people that are chosen as God's people to distinguish themselves in, a way that, in the way that they treat one another. Their interpersonal relationship should illustrate not their own earthly selfishness, but should illustrate the otherworldly selflessness of Christ. And lastly, there is the quality noted in the shorthand of beloved. Notice that their identity, our identity, isn't lovable, nor is it even loved. It's beloved. For that would center the focus of the love in us as the recipient. But this is the language, this idea of being lovable, or the love focusing on us, this is the language language of the therapeutic false Christianity that is so prevalent in the church today that requires nothing of the Christian because they are just so darn loved by God. This idea that Jesus loved you individually, not because of his character, but because you are just so worthy of that love. And friends, this is the antithesis to the gospel. God shows you and loves you, absolutely. That is the gospel. But the reason is in spite of what you and I deserve and in spite of what you and I are worthy of. Beloved speaks to the fact that the source of love is from God himself. The focus of the love is from the source. It speaks to the capacity of the giver of the love, not the value of the recipient. To be God's beloved is to be the one upon whom love has poured out, not because of our qualifications, but because of God's, that he is loving, gracious, merciful, and benevolent. All of this speaks in continuity to the point of God's new humanity, his new Israel, Christ's body, the church, made up of Jew and Gentile across all time and space. And this was Paul's point in speaking to the church, or excuse me, Peter's point, in speaking to the church dispersed throughout the empire, when he wrote in First Peter, chapter two verses nine through 10, says to the church, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." Notice the same wording from Deuteronomy, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so friends, we have been elected and chosen by God, by the creator of the universe, to be his people, set apart by his love for the mission of showing his character to the world enslaved in darkness and the lie that God is not good. That is us. And how do we display this? Do we display it by the fact that the church roughly looks no different than the world in divorce rates, in pornography use, in church splits and conflict and debate, online hatred of one another? Is this how we do it? No, Paul says very clearly that we are to put on a different appearance a different heart. Take a look there with me in verse 12. Put on then, in other words, because you are these people, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What we see here, friends, is a breakdown of the interpersonal relationships of those who have been, in Paul's words in chapter 3, raised with Christ, and those who set their minds on the enthroned Christ, ruling over them, not setting their minds on the things of the earth. In other words, this classifies the interpersonal relationships within the true church of Christ. First, there's the fact that we should have compassionate hearts. We need to put on compassionate hearts. Now, as we go through all of these, realize that to put them on means what? That they're not innately there. We must stop tricking ourselves into believing that if we just go with our gut, will turn out like Jesus. We must put on compassionate hearts. Now, the word for the Greek here is not the word that's typically translated for hearts, "cardia." it's "splanchna." That doesn't sound Greek to me, it sounds like German maybe, "Splanchna," right? Lots of phlegm in that one. Which is most woodenly translated as bowels, or belly, or kidneys in English. But more importantly, what it means is the center of the psychological faculty of desire, intent, and feeling. In other words, the heart, the feelings, the desires. So we must put on, over the top of our emotions, our desires, our motivations, our feelings, compassionate hearts. Well, when this word splankna is combined with the Greek word for compassionate, what it means is that all of our psychological faculty of desire, intent, and feeling needs to be for the concern of the other. Now, I don't know about you guys, but my feelings, emotions, wounds, and hurts are always focused on me. You guys ever notice that with yourselves? But this says, We have to put on compassionate hearts. In other words, we have to force ourselves to recognize the heart of Christ and say, no, my concern is not going to be for me. It's going to be for the person standing in front of me who, quite honestly, I don't want to have concern for right now. And that's why we need otherworldly help to do it. It's the one upon whom we are to show mercy And is this not the heart of God? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Friends, we are the proverbial cosmic poo on the bottom of the cosmic shoe. And yet, God made us a little bit higher than the angels and poured out his love on us because his compassionate heart declared concern for us. Like Israel, we were the antithesis of something to be chosen and adopted, and yet God reached out his benevolent spirit and grabbed hold of our hearts and drew all of us to him. And the same heart of mercy and concern for the other is to be that which we clothe ourselves with first. Now, friends, does this come easy? Does this care for others come first in our lives to have concern for them before ourselves if it did, Instagram and TikTok would look a whole lot different, wouldn't it? Does this come easy to make ourselves vulnerable to others and refuse self-protection? And, in, and, and what is this? It's insanity, actually, in a world that fixates on selfishness and greed and lust, where everyone has an angle. But friends, this is the heart of God. Which is why when we are successful in doing it, when the the few moments in my 43 years I'm actually successful in putting on a compassionate heart, it is shocking to the world around us because it stands out so clearly when we actually walk in it. Compassionate hearts. Lord, help us. Secondly, we're to put on kindness. Now, simply put, this is the quality of being friendly or generous or considerate. Again, notice the need to provide something beneficial for the other. It's to care more about the other than for yourself. This sounds like the mind of Christ from chapter 2 of Philippians, doesn't it? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the kenosis, the emptying of Christ, the mind of Christ. If we are to reflect Christ's glory to the world, we must put on kindness, in addition to our compassionate hearts. Lord, help us. Third, Paul lists the quality of humility. And this quality is at the core of submission. It is the heart stance, humility is, that allows us to destroy our self-centeredness and our self-exaltation and our self-protection. It helps us to submit not just to Christ, but to his image that sits in the church to one another. To each other within the body, to each other within our homes and families, it is humility that allows a husband to submit to his wife's good counsel, and it's humility that allows a wife to submit to her husband even though he's imperfect. One commentator put it this way, if kindness is a Christ-like attitude towards others, humility is the Christ-like attitude towards oneself, supremely exemplified in that readiness to forego his own rights. Humility is the heart stance that willingly lays down one's life for the sake of the other so that they might be built up. Humility. Lord, help us. Now, the only reason that I'm up here and you're down there is I have to stand while I preach, but if I were sitting down there, I don't know about you, but I'd be slinking down in my chair a little bit with each one of these, right? Fourth is meekness. Paul couples this up in his description of Christ in 2 Corinthians as meek and gentle. It's the opposite of acting in anger, which is seen in the vice list we looked at last week. It's the approach we have towards others, and it's a power that's under control and used appropriately. We each have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit within us, we each have an ability to be part of the body that judges itself, but that power is given up because the trust of God's sovereignty in our lives and the lives of those around us causes us to be gentle and realize we are not God. We can entrust one another to him, and so we are meek towards each other. We are gentle. Lord, help us. Fifth is patience. Core to God's character is his long-suffering and steadfast love. Raise your hand in this room if God has been patient with you. 43 years of patience is the story of my life, not my patience, God's patience with me. And this speaks to his patience. Patience leaves room for God's sovereignty to play itself out in one another's life. When we are dealing with each other, we are patient with each other, not because we trust the other. In fact, uh, the reality is, is we shouldn't trust one another. We're humans. But as Christians, we trust God in the life of the other. It cedes control of that person to the Lord and allows them the room in their lives to make mistakes and to learn. It is entrusting the other to the Holy Spirit's hand rather than hurrying to make them accountable to one's own anger and need for vengeance. Lord, help us. Patient, meek, humble, kind, compassionate hearts. What a beautiful picture. And he takes all these qualities that we're to put on, the ones that are not innate to us, and he moves into a more explicit statement of how they should affect our activity towards one another. He says that Christians are to bear with one another. I love this part because it admits our humanity. All of us have idiosyncrasies, all of us have pathologies, all of us have baggage and predispositions to sin not to mention differences in personality that just naturally grate on other personalities. None of you know what that's like, right? (laughs) (laughs) To bear with one another is to restrain your natural reaction towards those people that may strike you as odd or difficult or just too different for your taste. Now, this may seem fake in a world where we push being authentic, Friends, authentic is just another way of embracing our sinful, narcissistic arrogance. To bear with one another is core to who we are to be. In areas that are quirks and not acts of sin, we are to put up with one another and give room for one another's quirks and a reflection of Christ's bearing with us. And we're to do so gladly. I'm so thankful for all of you that put up with me. I'm thankful for a wife and children that put up with me. Those of you that know me well, when I get passionate, you think to yourselves, oh, I just got to put up with his passion for a minute. He'll calm back down, right? I'm thankful for a church that bears with me. And we're to bear with one another gladly because it reflects the love of Christ. And lastly, Paul says that we're to actively, persistently forgive one another if we have a complaint against one another. Friends, this is to be the hallmark of God's people because it is the hallmark of the gospel that saves each of us as God's beloved. Paul already stated that the record of debt that stood against us, the record of our sinful rebellion against God, was nailed to the cross at the crucifixion of Jesus on our behalf. And it is because of his death that God was able to justly look upon us as sinless and therefore forgiven. So what right do we have when another Christian who's repentant and whose sin has been nailed to the cross, what right do we have to go and rip that sheet of paper back down and shove it in their face and refuse to forgive them? What right do we have? If Christ is all, in all, in the church, then we are to forgive just as he has forgiven us. To not forgive when repentance is present is to lift ourselves above Christ and say that we are worthy of forgiveness, but we have deemed the one who is seeking forgiveness from us not worthy of the same. We have exalted our hurt and grievance above the sovereignty of Christ in those moments. Friends, where would each of us in this room be if Christ said The hurt of your sin is too deep. I cannot forgive. I cannot reconcile. We would be lost in our sin. And yet we say the same to one another and feel justified in doing so while proclaiming out of the same mouth that we are Christians. Commentator David Powell makes a powerful observation that forgiveness is one of the ways in which we participate in the new creation. I love this. He says, quote, In forgiving those around us, We continue this act of recreation as we disengage that person from their hurtful act. And in doing so, we recreate them through this grace of God. We, in essence, are passing on the new creation power of Christ and granting a person regeneration in that moment in which we forgive. And friends, innate to this is the fact that they're repentant. The discussion of a person who's unrepentant, that's a whole different discussion and a whole different kind of forgiveness. But this is the church where we are to repent quickly, confess quickly, and forgive quickly. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another and being ready and willing to forgive one another. Easy, right? Easy. Friends, if you are anything like me, and you've had the interpersonal struggles I've had over 43 years, I look at this list. I look at this list. And It seems as though I am at the foot of Mount Everest, being told to ascend to the summit with nothing but my hands and feet. It is impossible. But thanks be to God, who gives us the grace. Friends, notice... That these qualities and these actions are not innate. They are to mark Thanks but. they are to mark our relationships, not because we are people that can do it, but because our relationships are based in the very gospel that gives us these things. Amen, amen. They are not our authentic selves. God, protect me from my authentic self. (laughs) Our authentic selves are destructive and meant to be destroyed. No, these qualities and actions must be put on. They must be chosen. They must be propagated and practiced because they are not natural to us. And this is why we must slay our flesh and replace it with these other worldly ways of interacting. And the whole point here is that this is impossible without Christ. It's impossible. You might be able to pull it off for a day. And if you do, you're much better than me in your own strength. But it's impossible without a complete and absolute connection to the head of the body, to Christ. Now do you see why Paul begged the Colossian church to not become enslaved to simple religious acts of asceticism and self-denial, of trying harder? They have no power in them. Our attempts to try harder aside from Christ and his spirit has no power other than a power to destroy us. But connection to the head, to Christ, that is what will powerfully change us. And it is from this realization and truth that Paul next says that all of this is based on Christ. It is Christ's love that binds us and unites us in perfect harmony and peace. It is as his peace that rules our hearts and acts as the umpire determining right from wrong. This idea of peace that is spoken of there, it says, above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. This peace, this peace is only from Christ. It is Christ's love that binds us and unites us in perfect harmony. It is this peace that rules our hearts and acts as that umpire. It is this peace that would have brought the Colossians to a point where they paid attention because this peace would have been a powerful one to that original audience. On the one hand, this peace is the fulfillment of all Jewish eschatological hope. It's the peace that the Prince of Peace would rule over his people and bring all things to harmony once again. For the Romans, for the Hellenists, it it stood in stark contrast to the economic and military-based Pax Romana, or peace of Rome, that could only come from a heavy-handed political overlord. In contrast to the Pax Romana, which had human power at its core, the Pax Christiana has love at its core. Not the perverse idea of love that we have today, which allows others to destroy themselves and act in foolishness and outside the truth, The version of love that says, you do you, be your authentic self, and we will love you where you're at, that's a lie. That's not love. That's destruction. That's shoving someone into hell. But it's the true love based upon Christ's character, Christ's word, Christ's wisdom, and Christ's forgiveness that calls us to repentance and reconciliation with him. This love that Christ has shown each of us is the love that has called us to himself and this is to be the bonding agent that brings us together and holds us together in perfect harmony, or as the Greek says, completeness. That same commentator notes, to, uh, notes uh, it is our way of participating in the cosmic reconciliation that Christ has brought about through the blood-bought salvation of Christ. This commentator, Powell, refers to the church in his commentary as the reconciled people of God. When we find ourselves unable to sit in perfect harmony with one another, we must dig deep within ourselves to see if we have made ourselves king so that we can overrule the very law that saved us and reconciled us to the Father, the law that flows out of the gospel. You see, this idea of love that bonded together in perfect harmony based upon Christ and his love was Paul's great hope for Colossae and for every other church. Look with me really quickly at Colossians 2. 1 through 3. Colossians 2, 1 through 3. He says, Therefore I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This was Paul's great goal and heart for the gospel-driven church then, and it's his goal and heart today. So, friends, why doesn't the church look like this? Why, when I look at this, do I see the foot of Mount Everest and an impossibility Why does it bring tears to my eyes and conviction? Could it be that we are just a superficial church reliant in superficiality on Christ? We have it at the surface, but not down deep. It could be that there are more tares than wheat amongst us. It could be that we simply go through the paces of being without hostility rather than at peace and harmony. But underneath, all the while, we're just boiling up into bitterness and hard-heartedness and we're confusing it with bearing with one another. It could be any of these and many other things. But ultimately, Paul's point is not to figure out what the cause is. It's just simply sin. He says, ultimately, the solution is to be so connected to Christ and reliant upon Christ that it leads to a heart change that then results in actions that reflect Christ. For, friends, we will never have peace, we will never have unity based in harmony until we have an underlying heart change. And so we first have to beg the Lord to change what's underneath. But amazingly enough, he gives us a tool there that we can even use to partner with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul moves into next as he points out our second and final point. The thankful heart behind our new nature the thankful heart behind our new nature. Super awkward when you blow your nose in front of 150 people. All right, let's read three, fifteen through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which... Indeed, you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 15 is a hinge between the activity itself and the heart behind the activity, but notice the common thread that is stated three times, once in 15, once in 16, once in 17. It is thankfulness. Friends, this is much more than the gratitude that is present when we go through the motions, like saying rub a dub dub, thanks for the grub, before every meal. This is a gratitude that affects every part of your being because you know that in receiving, you have been given a gift far more valuable than what you deserve. A lot of times when we say thanks, it's because oh, you fulfilled your job in making me feel as valuable as I really am, right? It shows a gift of grace. It's thankfulness for a gift of grace. It's, it's the gratitude that comes from a stark realization of the other potential and likely outcomes if that person did not give you that gift of grace. It's the difference between thanking someone who passes you the potatoes at dinner... And thanking someone who finds your lost infant in a busy playground and returns them to you unscathed. Parents, you know what this is like. One is just tradition and good manners. The other is a desire to literally hand your life over in servitude because you know the goodness that you just experienced in spite of yourself. That's thankfulness. And it is this simple word, thankfulness, which is at the heart of worship of God. If you are anything like me, You gloss over this word because it's everywhere in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, I have to be thankful. I get it. But in reality, I work hard for what I've earned. If I'm honest, I'm a bit or maybe a lot entitled to what I get. And I'm pretty good. I try to be a good citizen, so I deserve more, right? So thanks is just me showing how good I really am. But such a spirit is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's wisdom that is in fact foolishness and comes from an unspiritual and demonic source. No, friends, thanksgiving is the heart of worship because it's at the heart of the creator to creation and provider to recipient pattern. Being thankful is at the core of what it is to be the creation worshiping their creator. It's core to what it is to be the recipient worshiping their provider. It is when we forget the need to be thankful that we fall into the same trap that we looked at last week in Romans. Romans 1, 21 through 22, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. To let thanksgiving fall away from the core of who we are is to do just this. It's to darken our hearts against him and set ourselves up as the highest authority. But instead, thankfulness, when we practice it, it holds us in a place of neediness, which requires humility. Holds us in a place of meekness where we understand all power comes from God. It holds us in a state of patience and forbearance and forgiveness for one another because we have received those same things from Christ. And thankfulness for that grace helps us to extend it. Think about what happens if we're not thankful. We begin to take all that Christ has given us for granted. And friends, how does that turn out? Turn with me to Matthew 18 and we'll find out. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 20, uh, 35. Matthew eighteen twenty-one through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, he starts a story. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money, just FYI. And since he could not pay, because it was an amount that couldn't be paid back in a lifetime, right? Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Well, that's an impossibility, just FYI. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, comparison here is massive 10,000 talents, hundred denarii. Okay, that's nothing. That's like pocket change. Okay, hundred denarii. And it says that seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master will deliver him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How does it end when thankfulness is not present? Thankfulness for the grace of God. A lack of thanksgiving allows us to drift back to a place where we usurp the throne of our lives, exalt ourselves over others, and harden our hearts toward them, which results in harm. And Paul's point is that living in a constant state of thankfulness will help us fight against this. Thankfulness to God for life, for his salvation, for his provision. Thankfulness to him for our spouses. Thankfulness for our children. Thankfulness for our roommates, our friends, our co-laborers in the ministry, our pastors, our elders, our deacons, those we have to bear with. Thankfulness. But again, this kind of thankfulness discussed in Colossians is not natural. We have to pray daily for the Lord to change our hearts from the entitled people that we are to people full of thanksgiving to Christ for his divine mercy and grace. How does this heart change take place? Well, that is Paul's next command. Let the word of Christ dwell or live in you richly. Isn't it interesting, back in Colossians 3, that he uses this word, let, in verse 15. Would you turn back there with me to Colossians? let, he uses this in both both 15 and 16, let the peace, let the word. For these forces are already at work in us because of the indwelling spirit of God. And in a sense, the Holy Spirit desires to give life and growth to them. We merely have to let them have their way. And this happens partially through putting to death those attitudes and actions which barricade our hearts to the movement of the Spirit. But it also requires us to participate with the Spirit, which means we have to stay connected to Christ through the Word and through prayer. How else does the Word of God dwell in us? But then Paul notes that we can also help by proactively teaching one another and reactively admonishing or challenging one another when we see sin in one another's lives. And this happens through mutual discipleship, where we stay immersed together in the Word of God. But Paul also indicates that we can even do it in our corporate worship. Notice that the word dwelling in you richly here is not just Bible memorization. It is that, and please hear me, we should all be memorizing Scripture. But the greater picture here is that it dwells among you. It sits as this beautiful, wonderful cloud amongst us as the church. It dwells in us not just in memory, but in activity. For the early church, they could also do this in corporate worship, and we still do it today. We have these Bibles in front of us, we have them on our phones, but for the early church, it was a church that often did not have access to paper copies of the Bible or possibly lived in illiteracy. And so songs were used to pass on creeds and good theology. They were used to teach. Some of those creeds are even noted in scripture. And this continued with John and Charles Wesley. They did this a ton in their hymns as they wrote it because they knew that many people learned through singing. That's why we're so careful about the songs that we sing at this church. We want songs that focus upon the glory of God, not on your lovability. Notice the difference. And notice the contrast here of what the mouths of the church are to be used for versus what the mouths of the church were used for in the previous section in Colossians. There, the mouths of the church were used to harm one another and tear the church down. Here, they're used to teach, exhort, and build up the church with thanksgiving and praise. The mouths of the local congregation are meant to unite rather than divide. But again, how otherworldly is this to us? And so Paul finishes with that which will help us step into this attitude and activity that is so foreign to our flesh. Friends, we have been purchased, adopted, welcomed, united, and reconciled to the Father through Christ. And so we must now recognize, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name, the authority, the lordship of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We must strive to let his lordship over our lives be the foundation of every moment, every attitude, every thought, every relationship, And that must set our actions as a church. We will exist as a loving body on the surface only for a short while, but a heart change that has thankfulness at its core, it will cause us to be firmly founded in Christ and in the gospel so that we then might exhibit all the outward love and care for one another that he has shown us. The very love exhibited through his death and resurrection and pouring out of his spirit into our hearts. When we enter into unity in Jesus, When we put off the outward actions and heart attitudes of our flesh, that means that our old motivations and our allegiances die with us in baptism and we fight against them the rest of our life. And what raises the life anew is a life in which all authority has been given over to Christ. We are now striving with every ounce of our being individually and collectively to conform to the character of Christ and to his way of ministering to those that he loves. He is not to be our membership card to heaven for when we die and we only pull out of our wallet and look at on Sundays or during our morning Bible studies when we get around to him. He is to be our everything. The entirety of our lives has to be based now on the fact that Jesus is Lord. And as a response, we will give thanks in everything for what he has done for us. And this is what is outwardly going to mark us as his people and make others go, you are a different people. If we can do that, the world around us will turn and say what they were supposed to say about Israel. Look at them. Surely this church is a wise and understanding people. For what group of people is there that has a God so near to it as Jesus is to them? And what great nation acts and lives in the rule of Christ so that his law of liberty and love and holiness and selflessness lies at the foundation of all they do? And this also is what will allow us to be the evangelistic group that we are called to be. For those who are Christ's and in whom his spirit dwells, they will be drawn into this body so that they can join us in giving thanks to God. We heard this earlier in our second reading. Paul says, for it is all for your sake, as he cares for the church, it's all for the other's sake so that his grace extends to more and more. The gospel reaches more and more people. It may increase what? 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 Thanksgiving to the glory of God. Friends, if you are here today and you look at this list of characteristics that we're to put on and you think, I want this to describe me, but it doesn't, then we first need to ask the big question of if we are Christ's, if we are converted at the heart level. And if not, it should give you a sense that Christ's spirit has begun to draw you, but you have not willingly stepped into the life of a believer to crucify the flesh and choose to walk in the law of Christ. You've not submitted yourself to Jesus and submitted yourself to his people, and we would call you to do so. If that is you and you are realizing that you are being drawn in but not walking in obedience to Christ, we would love to talk with you after the service. Please come talk with one of us pastors at the end of the gathering today. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ though, in this room, and yet you read this list and think, oh Lord, I am so sorry. I have so much work to do in surrendering my heart to you. I've seen these things in, in bits and, and spurts and you know, tried at times, but that does not holistically speak to me or the collective body of this church. I want to say to you, please realize you are not alone. That should be the heart cry of every Christian. But notice that the solution is to purposefully go back to Christ and back to His gospel and to hold tight, to immerse yourself in His gospel, in His word. And how can we be kind and compassionate? How can we be humble and meek and patient with one another? By remembering the gospel of Jesus. By remembering what our Lord has done for us. That you and I did not and do not deserve the kindness of our God and yet He has forgiven us and is slowly reconstructing our hearts to change with each situation of conflict or disagreement or sin. We just have to put the work in to let those moments and the Holy Spirit's conviction with them do their work. And this can and should be our daily prayer. Lord, have your way with me. Only let me understand how to engage everything in your name so that I can grow into a person after your image, especially in the way that I relate to the people around me today. Friends, will you join me in that daily prayer, that momentary, moment-by-moment prayer? Lord, have your way with me. Change my heart, please, God. Remembering the gospel will bring about the thanksgiving that we need to have at our core, and that is why the central point of our gathering is to immerse ourselves in the word of God that convicts our hearts, reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then prepares us for the moment we're about to step into, the culmination of every Sunday gathering which is the practice of the ordinance of communion. Communion, which has historically been called the Eucharist. Now, before you get too worried that we're being even more liturgical or becoming Catholic, please realize this is what they called communion from a very early point in the church. And why did they do that? Because the word Eucharisto in the Greek means thanksgiving. This is the act of thanksgiving. And the ordinance of the Lord's Supper was meant and is meant to adjust our heart stance to a place of thanksgiving. The Didache, which was a teaching manual of the early church fathers, outlined how churches were to practice the Eucharistic tradition. They would take the cup and say, We give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of your son David, which you made known to us through your son Jesus. Yours is the glory unto the ages of ages. And then with the bread they would say, We give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through your Son Jesus. Yours is the glory unto ages of ages. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and being gathered together became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ unto ages of ages. Friends, notice the core of thanksgiving. We do not say it the exact same way, but the core is thanksgiving. It's the Eucharist. Understanding all that we have to be thankful for in the salvation of Jesus Christ, let us now as a church enter into that communion asking the Lord to conform our hearts and our relationships into that which has been clearly outlined here by Paul to the Colossians. And let us collectively strive to be a people who put on this clothing of Christ so that we might act in concert, act together to the praise of his glorious name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is so powerful. We thank you for the fact that your word convicts us of our brokenness, And calls us to something that is beyond ourselves and otherworldly and in absolute need of your empowerment. Because if you called us to something we could do on our own, we would further exalt ourselves. And so we thank you for calling us to something that we cannot do in ourselves. And so Holy Spirit, we pray to you that you would take our hearts and break them and mold them, circumcise them with the circumcision made without hands. Take us and convert us at the very core level of who we are to lay aside our selfishness, our idolatry, and all the things that we hold on to to prop ourselves up. Help us to put those aside and cease from living in that place. And then help us to put on, to pick up this clothing that is meekness and kindness and compassionate hearts and patience and forgiveness and bearing with one another in love. Help us, Holy Spirit, to put those on even in this moment. Lord, for any of us in this room that are stuck in the midst of current conflict, whether it's in our homes or in our friendships or with our kids or maybe our coworkers, God, we pray that you would conform us to your image so that we can enter back into those with these same hearts that we just looked at today. And help us to be those that desire peace and are the peacemakers and do everything that we can within our power to bring peace and harmony to our relationships. And at the same time, help us to stand firm in your word that is calling us to do so, knowing that we can be both loving and kind and patient and also stand firm on your word. It is not mean to do so. It is necessary out of love for a world that is walking their way into hell and uh, imminent destruction. And so we pray, God, that you would change our hearts now as we prepare to step into communion. In Jesus' name, amen.